Jackie, thank you very much for joining me for the podcast today. We've spent a lot of time together on live webinars, in-person events, uh, and many more. But uh, what a great way for the audience to get to know you better. And one of the nice things about the podcast is that even people that have known you for a long time get to learn some things about you that sometimes they don't come up in daily conversation, which is a nice way to do it. Um, so the uh, with with uh, that said, I will start with a few questions, but uh, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Gary. So tell us a bit about yourself. Who is Jackie Sons? That's a good question. <laughs> Who am I? I don't know. Um, no, I'm, um, I'm someone who's been in um, the financial services industry for, for a very long time. Um, I will say most people who know me well will know I am a lover of winter. I know that sounds crazy. Most people are lovers of summer, but I, um, I'm not a heat person. I am a, you know, be snugly warm with the right clothing, but be outside on a nice, cold, sunny, crisp day. That's, that's me. Um, the other thing is I am very passionate about giving back, supporting other women, networking, um, young females, whatever it is they do. It doesn't have to be in a professional sense, but just giving back. <clears throat> oh, and Jackie, I must say you're in the right country uh, for loving winter. <laughs> we got I got my scarf on. <laughs> Yeah, well, and and uh, and you know the, the the there's not something nice about winters that uh, I always say you can always wear more clothes, but it's hard if it's hot. You don't have too many options. So. No, it, when it's hot, you're usually stuck inside in air conditioning. But why? It's so beautiful outside. You want to be outside. I would rather not sweat and just be snuggly out in the cold, you know, just maybe your face is cold, but the rest of you is fine, right? It's, to me, much more logical. <laughs> I, uh, I love that. And like I said, you're in the right country. I know that you have some Spanish heritage, which would have been far harder to achieve this in Spain than here. So. Yes, this is why I am here and not there with the rest of the family. <laughs> now, uh, on that note, who had the biggest impact on your life growing up? Uh, not that it has to be exclusive to family. So really, I kind of view this in two ways. So in my, let's call it more sort of development of work ethic and, and that sort of thing, it was really my father. But when it comes to... Um, learning, embracing change, embracing what I would call sort of a global perspective from, from a work and all kinds of things. It would be uh, a former partner when I first started at what was then Coopers and Librand. Now people know it as PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, and he was an individual who recruited me in university, you know, your co-op terms. Um, he he was a total workaholic, but he was one of those individuals, um, and as my career will say, who basically said, because uh, I knew back then I wanted to be in the asset management business, and he was one who said to me, quite frankly, you need to work abroad 
you need to use your languages because I come with a background of multi um, multi languages. And more importantly, he said, and you need to embrace the different perspectives and don't think about North America or, or Canada. Think about things globally. And um, it, he's exactly right. And from my father's side, so he was an immigrant to Canada, came with essentially nothing, um, had to leave Spain because of the, you know, Franco era and, and everything that had happened in those days. And he had to provide for, you know, my mom and myself with nothing, barely speaking the language. And he was always not a workaholic, but somebody who it didn't matter how tired he was, what he had to do, what he had to sacrifice. And so that ability to say, you can have it all, you just got to work hard and recognize, you know, work-life balance is a flexible thing. It's not a fixed sort of 50-50 or some percentage. It's just, it morphs over time. Sometimes you have to work exclusively and hard, but you get something in return later, right? And so I would say the combination of these sort of two men in my life, the other gentleman, the partner was was a male. I would say the two of them really shaped my perspective, both in personal um, life, but even in just everyday um, professional and interacting with individuals. It's, it's really about multiculturalism, sort of a global perspective and just hard work ethic. I always love those immigrant uh, success stories and, and uh, the work ethic that they instill as a result of having worked hard themselves and their children. Right. Um, so the next question for you, and other this is now knowing that you love the cold and uh, <laughs> uh, being out in the cold, what are your favorite hobbies other than bundling up in a nice, sunny, <laughs> crisp day? So that's a, that's a good question. I think individuals wouldn't think this of me, but I am very much someone who likes to create stuff. So I'm not an artist sort of like my daughter, who's, you know, a painter and does all kinds of phenomenal art. I am more of um, like knitting, um, sort of crafting, if that makes sense. Uh, I make jewelry. um, I I knit. I haven't mastered crochet. And then the other thing is baking. I love to bake. And I am one of those people, maybe this is this work ethic thing, but when a recipe doesn't work, I'm not going to let it get to me. (laughs) I'm going to keep doing it. The other thing that, um, which is kind of strange for somebody who loves to bake, because there is a science to it. I don't read sort of, I don't follow a recipe. I don't um, kind of read it. And then, you know, to the, to the T, I'm one of those who will read a cookbook like an actual whole thing. And I get inspired with ideas and I'll substitute. I'm not very scientific. And that's why this whole idea of playing and get it till you get it. But also I don't write down when I, when I am successful, which you think I would learn, I actually don't write it down. So sometimes you kind of have to repeat and repeat until eventually you hit it again the second time or third time. But yeah, those are my things. It's, it's really uh, if I'm not using my mind, which is what I do all day long, it's very sort of cerebral. It's my hands. 
I love it. And I can totally see that. So not, I can't say I'm surprised. <laughs> Great. <laughs> now we talked a bit about the upbringing. Um, and often we, we start thinking about what we want to do uh, when we grow up since we're pretty young. What did you want to be uh, when you grew up, when you were a child? Uh, it'd be, you probably didn't imagine compliance uh, per se. No. So, yeah. yeah, no, it's true. I did not think specifically compliance, but interestingly, and this comes to going back to my father. So he had, when he came, uh, he had purchased a business and there were times that uh, my mom was working they didn't have daycare. And so up Jackie had to go to dad's work because he owned the business. My mom worked in a grocery um, store. So you can't have a small child in the grocery store. Can you imagine eating everything <laughs> in sight? Um, but uh, I would sit there in sort of the office part. And many a time he would have the firm's accountants in. And I used to think it was really cool. They'd keep, you know, the owner's child busy, give me little things to do. And I always thought, that's cool. I want to do that because I don't want to work as hard as my dad. Because I, I always thought they weren't working hard. You know, they weren't there all the time. They came in, they shoved paper around, punched numbers into a calculator, spit out stuff and, you know, would tell my dad, you're going to get this amount back or you got to pay this. And I just thought that was you know, cool. So I always thought I'm going to do accounting. And that was for the longest time. And then um, in high school, we did one of those uh, in some business class, I can't even remember now, we did one of those stock challenges, you know, where you on paper, you pick some stocks, do some investing, see how you perform. And it's to teach you a little bit about markets and and then that was it that I was bit by the bug and I was like, I'm going to be in capital markets. Um, and then I thought there's got to be a way to marry the accounting thing that I still thought was cool from my dad's business and capital markets. And so I, I pursued my CA, I guess now CPA, um, just because that was just the thing that, you know, I just knew those letters would do something for me. But throughout university and even in those co-op terms, when I referred to going to um, PwC, I was in that group. So I was in the group that would do audits, tax returns, et cetera, of uh, whether it's brokers, asset managers, fund companies, you know, in that sort of capital market space, um, and kind of the rest was history. All my global work uh, with PwC, you know, doing work in Luxembourg, some projects in um, Singapore and in Bermuda was all sort of my client base was all capital markets. Um, so that just that's kind of how I meandered into it. Now, obviously, accounting and compliance don't sound like they would drive, um, but it is a one of the proficiency requirements in Canada to be registered as a CCO is to be an accountant. So you can either be a lawyer, a CFA, or an accountant. So I didn't know that in my youth, but there you go. <laughs> it was a perfect fit. <laughs> 
No, I love it. And in fact, uh, it, it sets up nicely for the next question I wanted to ask you. Is, <laughs> I, I touched a bit on your career journey, but just what were some of the more pivotal moments of your career, just for our audience, because they sort of know Jackie in, in her context and it's uh, with highlights, not necessarily every organization, but like some more pivotal points. Yeah, uh, I mean, I would say two things. One was, um, again, in those early days post-university, um, that partner that hired me for the co-op terms and had me coming back, he basically sort of orchestrated, if you will, or directed the assignments I was on. So he, for whatever it is he saw, and I never really did ask him what he saw, I always got myself on some pretty important and strategic clients, some very large global asset managers um, and some innovative asset managers, right, with pretty neat products. Um, So I would say kind of following his lead was the first sort of pivotal moment. And I would say the next one is while, um, so I transferred to Luxembourg uh, with PwC, he basically just picked up the phone, you know, would call that office and say, how fast can you take Jackie? Because you're taking Jackie. Um, And then next thing I know, you know, running around, and I happen to have the Spanish passport, but my husband is about as Canadian as you can get. (laughs) So we had to figure out how do we get him over there aside from just living with me. Um, but um, while I was there, and this was just before uh, the Euro, um, I got to work on uh, a special project where we were consulting with the EU, um, you know, the, the sort of global offices about the Euro and how that would look and how a transition period would look and what that would mean for funds and asset managers because they had been proposing sort of the dual currency structure, right? You quote in Euro and you quote in whatever, Franks or whatever uh, whatever country you're in. And I would say that was pivotal because that was my first exposure of influencing and being really involved in, let's call it regulation. As much as it's about a currency and, you know, the switchover, it was really dealing with that engine, right? The The regulators, their intention, and how do you take something that's being imposed upon you, you know, statutorily, and how do you transition that as a company, in particular asset management, how do you deal with it? How do you integrate it into your day-to-day? And that would be sort of the start, if you will, of kind of the shift from um, more assurance, risk, valuation in the asset management world to compliance. Still in the asset management world, though. I'm a capital markets person. (laughs) That's just it. (laughs) Yeah, that we know you were a capital markets person through and through. So that makes makes the context a lot easier. And to be honest, even within the capital market space, there's a lot of verticals and a lot of of work that can be done within the space. But what were some of the biggest challenges you would say you encountered? Uh, And it could be one or it could be multiple and more so how you over uh, overcame them. And I asked that in the context of think of potential either current compliance professionals or, or aspiring uh, professionals. And 
it, sometimes it can seem ominous because the you know the burden to have to be in this space can is increasing or seems like it's increasing with time and how do you best prepare for it how do you come over uh, overcome some of these challenges no that's a good question and i would say for me it's two sort of challenges that be, you know when you combine them you know exacerbates it and i will say it's quite common um, in the industry so one is gender uh, being female in capital markets remember i mean i started 20 plus years ago i'm dating myself now but highly highly male dominated not just in the c-suite but at all levels i mean traders Never have I ever seen in my first sort of 10 years plus any females on a trading desk like that, that don't even know if there were any um, portfolio managers, extremely rare, right, to find a female. So my first challenge was sort of a female. And this is why I say they come together in the role of compliance. And I also in the beginning also had a role of internal audit. I was the chief auditor. When you're in a role of sort of that's viewed as an enforcer, right, and you like demand stuff and police people, and you're in an industry that is heavily male dominated as a female, it's a double whammy, right? You, you, you're trying to get past the credibility um, of, you know, the female, the gender thing, and then the fact that you're telling these people who are wildly successful and, you know, generate revenues and, you know, have done great that they're assuming too much risk, you know, whether that's regulatory risk, legal risk, reputational risk, um, and trying to collaborate with them was, was really hard. I would say that was the most difficult. And so it kind of became a game of, and I would say this to all um, and this isn't just for females, but in particular females, you need to go in with confidence. Um, that industry is an industry of a lot of ego, some of it well-deserved, some suspect, but it is, you know, there's a lot of bravado. There's a lot of sort of ego, a lot of numbers tossing, you know, profitability. And um, and so you need to go in there with, you know, pretty strong um, sort of self-confidence, self-awareness, um, but also, you know, you have to be resolute. You have to be sort of firm. You cannot, whatever course you're going to go down, whatever position you're going to take, you really have to think in advance of your strategy. It can't be a you come down hard and then you acquiesce in the end, right? It needs to be something that you are very strong and confident with and you need to carry that throughout, you know, whatever the particular topic is or situation is. Um, even if you don't, I'm going to say, get your way, and I don't mean that negatively, you you can still demonstrate your, you know, being resolute um, by by virtue of, great, then I'm going to document this you know, it's going to be recorded in the records of the firm. It's going to be reported to whoever, right? A board or a C-suite or whoever. Um, and it's it's official, right? And you need to have the confidence to, you may not make the final decision or get 
what you're hoping to achieve from an outcome perspective, but you need to know and trust in whatever position you're taking, right? Whatever you're you're trying to get accomplished. It's not easy. It does require um, thick skin. I used to say it was made of Teflon and you kind of have to let those arrows that come at you kind of bounce and slide off, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Um, because whether you're in audit or whether you're in compliance, you know, you're generally... Anything you come into, doesn't matter how right you are, how reasonable you're being, how collaborative you're being, you're kind of viewed as the bad guy, right? You're, you're preventing or inhibiting the ability to do something, whatever that something is. And that's, that's the view, even if you've never met the person before, that's the perception, right? As soon as you come into any kind of discussion, um, and it's you know, you need to be thick skinned, like you need to not take things personally. I will say in my younger years, you would stress out and I'd see many people and this is male and female, like even health wise, like you stress so much, you lose sleep, you know, you feel like, oh my gosh, that issue got escalated all the way up to the chairman, vice chairman, CEO, right? Like anywhere. And you kind of, and this is where the confidence comes in is you just, you need to be resilient. Don't take it personally. Nobody's attacking you as, you know, Jackie or as Gary. They just don't like your message. And you just have to remember, you're the messenger. You are doing the right thing for everybody, whether that's the corporation, um, the parties that are involved in case they're, you know, doing something that's inappropriate and they personally could be liable. Um, and you're you're doing it from the right place. And you just you need to recognize that it's going to be hard. People are going to be, um, I'm going to put this in air quotes, difficult with you. <laughs> um, there's varying degrees. Things will be said. Um, you know, capital markets, I will say, for whatever reason, seems to attract um, people who don't have a lot of filters. <laughs> A lot gets said, a lot of emotional stuff happens. And I know it's the stress of the day and the stress of the markets, but you kind of have to be made of Teflon, you know, and thick skinned. And and just when you leave work, leave it behind. You'll deal with it tomorrow. You know, it's not the end of the world. It's not personal. It's not a reflection on your abilities. It's, but it's hard. It, it is it's not for everybody, right? That's the thing. And and I would say some, not all industries are like capital markets, but there are many others that I can imagine um, being quite similar, right? Where it's just a high stress environment. And so everybody is on edge, right? And when people are on edge, you, you know, things happen, things get said that aren't personal, but it's out there, right? Well, and that's, uh, you're right, the the, the compliance uh, role does come with pressures, you become the often the bad cop, not for not because you'd like to be, uh, but because you have somebody has to play their role of monitoring things. And, yeah. and, 
I, I like to use the comparison as like, you know, you, sometimes you hire litigators for, for because there may be an issue and you may not always like what they have to say, but the good thing about with the experience they have is that they bring sort of a perspective of, of uh, why you should do things a certain way. And uh, probably lawyers in general well beyond uh, before it gets to litigation because they try to prevent that from uh, getting there in the first place. Right. Uh, so one uh, on a related note, uh, some of your previous roles were with individual uh, asset managers, and now you're in a role where you're consulting a bit more broadly, and you see some uh, more more general themes. Um, the w- considering some of the themes you see now, and sort of the you may see some gaps that may be consistent throughout different places, but also some best practices that may uh, that may have appeared a bit more as you have this broader spectrum. So to the extent that some compliance professionals are, are listening and you want, you want to give them mm-hmm. some tips on, on sort of best practices or where things tend to go uh, wrong most commonly or where there may be gaps more often than we think, what would those be and what advice would you have for either existing compliance professionals or aspiring? Yeah, you know, that's that's a good question. and And I would say... One of the things that is very important is, and it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but is to gather intelligence, have a network to understand what your peers are doing. So, you know, it's, it's compliance is not a competitive advantage, right? And, and it's important that an industry, you know, quite similarly applies whatever rules are applicable to them because most rules are principles-based, right? They're not, it's not like um, like a tax rule or some other rule that's very kind of prescriptive. This is very much sort of, I liken it to a sandbox, right? And they define how big the box is and everybody has to play nice in the sandbox. Well, you don't want to have all the kids up in one corner and you're in another corner because when a regulator comes knocking, you're the anomaly. Like why is that kid in the corner all by themselves? So you kind of want to be not necessarily in the middle of the pack, but you want to generally, you know, benchmark yourself and understand how are people tackling this, recognizing it's not about the precise processes, because every organization is structured differently, right? They have different tools, different sort of governance and approvals and, you know, layers of review. Um, But in sort of general, understanding and being able to benchmark yourself is very important. And if you don't have that network, if you don't have some, you know, a good 20 or 30 people, you can pick up a phone that are in your business um, that you trust and that you can you know, be open with, um, then, and this is the benefit of not, not to put a plug in, in consultants, but this is the benefit of being able to go to consultants or, you know, your auditors or whomever, they see the industry and they can give you benchmark type intelligence, right. And say, Hey, you know, you're, you're dramatically different, whether you're a front outlier or, back end doesn't really matter. You're just, think of it as a bell curve. You're kind of on one extreme and you just don't know, even if you're in the forefront, if the regulator is going to agree, right? Like at the end of the day, you're kind of safer in the pack. I know that sounds crazy to say, but you don't want to be 
out there, right? You don't want to be that dramatically different. And so I would say probably the single biggest tip is have a network. Um, make yourself a network across the industry. And it doesn't have to be the same. Like, you know, you may not be a big asset manager with like 100 funds. Just, you know, have a good cross section because it's the same rules, whether you're an asset manager with under a billion and, you know, assets under management or somebody who's, you know, eight, nine, 10, 20, 50 billion, right? It doesn't matter. It's the same rule book. Um, and everybody approaches it differently. And it's not about tech, right? Maybe larger ones have more dollars to spend. So they get fancy tech or they have more employees or, or whatever, it's really about understanding their approach. You're just focused on the approach and then you can replicate, if you will, in your own environment, whether you're using, I don't know, Excel <laughs> or some fancy system, um, you have to innovate in how you're going to apply it. But you do want to, you do want to understand from a benchmarking type perspective, where do you sit? Because uh, it's all about risk, right? There's no such thing. And that's probably the other thing I would say to everybody. There's no such thing as 100% compliance. It, that does not exist. That is not possible. Um, but there's degrees, right? And when I say degrees, it also depends on what areas you're willing to assume risk, right? In other areas, you're going to be higher. You're going to be whatever, 80, 90%. Or um, in others, you may you may take the risk. You know, you may have a very low um, percentage because you think reputationally it's a non-issue, or there's the likelihood of a fine or any kind of punitive consequence is small. So you may say, okay, I don't have capacity. I only have two employees. I don't have tech. I don't, you know, I'm not one of those big firms. So I'm going to assume risk here but uh, there's no way I'm going to assume it here, right? So it's it's kind of about perspective, both how you fit in with your peers in the industry, but what's reasonable with what you can do, right? You have limited resources, be that people and money and tech available to you, um, and you can only do what you can do, right? So I would say um, that would be my biggest tip is be able to benchmark yourself. And, and that's very important, Jack. I think uh, very important tips uh, throughout uh, that entire answer. But I'm just going to distill on a couple. Um, and one was the sort of the peers and uh, consulting with colleagues and have a few people to call. Um, I know you are part of a group of com compliance professionals, if you want to tell a bit of the audience about that, because I can only imagine some junior compliance professionals trying to figure this out, not necessarily knowing the support systems are out there and beyond their group, if there are any other recommendations for groups that uh, uh, people can look at as, as a group where they can meet with uh, fellow compliance professionals. Yeah. You know, I would say two things. So yes, um, there is a CCO sort of network. Um, I'm one of the founders amongst others that are still around and haven't yet fully retired. Um, and that's something we just created out of a need. You know, you just start with the, we always called each other and that you meet at conferences and, you know, other events, and then you kind of sort of formalize it and, and it grows. But the other thing I would say is many industry associations also have 
groups, you know, like a compliance network or working groups, right, where they will host your peers from a registrant perspective, um, it's important to participate in these things. I, I do recommend, and many of them are very inexpensive to join on an annual basis. And the benefits you get in the ability to have a network, right, to speak with, but also many of these associations provide their members with this is a very technical term, stuff. <laughs> and by that, I mean, you know, templates of, I don't know, a particular policy, you know, a form to record approvals or all kinds of different things. And those are tools that you can use also to benchmark because the people who create them at these associations are representatives of the industry. It tends to be the same kinds of people that are in the CCO network that I referred to are the ones that leverage those industry associations. And so when you're in those associations as a member, even if you're, you know, not a spokesperson and don't really feel comfortable being in and contributing to a working group, you have these documents, right? These templates. And it's not to say that they've been blessed. They're not blessed by regulators. But they're a good indication of the types of things that your peers are doing, right? And it's another way to say, what do I have in place? What does it look like compared to what I got off, you know, the industry association um, member uh, site? And what do I want to take from it, not take from it? I think, I think those two sort of trying to get into you know, a network or leveraging the industry associations are probably the single best way to do it. Another thing, and I know this intimidates people, um, the commissions, the securities commissions and regulators themselves, they hold a lot of um, information sessions, webinars, you know, meetings. Um, and it's not so much what they say and, you know, it's scripted. It's always going to be sort of the same story. It's the ability to know them, to literally meet them, network with them, talk to them. And once you develop a relationship with, you know, individuals at the regulator, it's okay to phone them because you're demonstrating you're, you're trying to comply. Like you're interested in their perspective on, XYZ requirement, you know, whatever that is. And, and you really, you know, they're not going to give you a definitive what you have to do, what you should do, right? They, they toe the line. Um, but it's always good to have those conversations with them. So, and then I know for younger compliance folks, that's very intimidating, right? They, but they're the regulator. That's okay. They're people, right? They're like, you and I, some of them were in industry and went there. Some of them are lawyers that were in, um, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, private practice, went there, went back, you know, like these are people who know things and yeah, they have a job, but their job isn't um, to catch you, right? The job is to protect the integrity of the capital markets and, you know, investor protection. And if the way they do that is also, to answer your questions, you know, and, and you seek uh, advice or, or not counsel, but some insights, they're not going to say no, you know? So that one's probably the harder one. I will say that's something that took even me a while, but 
once you go to all those and you know these people as people, they're not so scary anymore. They're the regulator, but they're not, you know, the regulator with a capital R, <laughs> right? They're just people <laughs> doing their job. <laughs> Far less ominous when you put it that way, right? Because uh, the, the it's uh, true. to your point, they are people, they all have families they go to and so on. It's not always about the stick, what they regulate. Yeah. And that's not really their intention. It doesn't serve the markets or investor protection any good if all they do is wield a stick, right? Because if they're wielding a stick all the time, people are not conforming, right? They too need to be collaborative with the people they regulate to sort of get everybody generally moving, going back to that bell curve, right? Moving to the mean and doing something that is generally acceptable for those desired outcomes. Um, I know that uh, you are a famous multitasker and we touched on that even at the beginning <laughs> of the interview. Um, what are some productivity tips you use that make you able to produce as much as you do um, and often at the same time? <laughs> you see me working on something over here on this other screen, right? <laughs> um, you know what? I would say a couple of things. I would say that... Um, and, and this one sounds very, you know, simple. It's not simple, but I would say you need to be a master delegator. Um, and by that is know what you um, have to do yourself, like really what, where you're going to add value and it's worth the time and, you know, effort, commitment to using your time, but also realize that when you delegate, and you take the time, you know, and it's counterintuitive because you got to spend the time and you might think you can do it faster, but you spend the time in that coaching and, and helping whomever, right, that you've assigned stuff to, you actually train them. And the more you delegate, the more you bring others around you to a level of understanding of what you need and how you need it and what it's got to look like, you know, all those wonderful things. And the more you bring your team to that level, um, the more efficient you collectively become. You become more productive because you kind of everybody knows, you know, their strengths, their weaknesses, what we need, how to prioritize. So delegation is one. And then the other one, I would say, um, you know, things like just regular Microsoft Office, like use tools that you actually have available to you. A lot of people kind of think, oh, you know, Excel, you can't, what can you do with Excel? Learn the tech. It's amazing. And I, I, I've done this with smaller firms, you know, where I am now. And even when I was at a smaller firm, you'd be amazed at what basic technology, you know, it's not, it's obviously not workflows and the great big systems, but you can enable so much from yourself if you leverage tech. So I'm just going to use Excel as an example. Learn formulas. Learn how to write small, simple macros. You know, simple things that if it's going to be repetitive, let it do it for you. Why are you spending the time doing it, right? Let it do it for you. Um, learn also um, how to leverage um, 
I'm going to say solutions. So, you know, I think of AI and other providers out there that use these types of technology and bots and stuff. These things, particularly if you have activities that are repetitive, um, leverage it. It's, it's actually becoming less and less expensive to acquire it. And without, and it's less expensive than the headcount that you'd have to bring in leverage it like I don't know how else to say and we're not talking fancy systems here right writing little bots and and leveraging AI um, and also I'm gonna say shop Um, and by that I mean not to plug Alexa but shop around for your service providers right because typically um, as they compete on price on the same token, they compete on service, right? And if they can make you more efficient and deliver and, you know, meet all your expectations, you can do more, right? Not everybody has um, budgets for it, but there are things that you have to do by law and you can't do it yourself. So for those things like a translation <laughs> um, in another language that you're prescribed to do, you know, find find people with the same type of philosophy with you, right? With the right tools and technology that enable you to get things done quicker and faster and increase your capacity to do more. Does that make sense? <laughs> Very much so. And uh, I love that the, there was a natural Alexa translations plugin because it just goes so well with the efficiency at the time. <laughs> It's true though, right? Like these are the things that we need to think about how do you increase your capacity, right? That's at the end of the day, what multitasking does. It's just a, a an approach to increasing your capacity. <clears throat> and no, I really appreciate those insights. And I think it'll be certainly helpful for, like I said, aspiring professionals in compliance existing, uh, regardless what stage of their career they're in. So I will go to another stage of our podcast, which is what we call a rapid fire question. So I just want you to okay. sort of whatever comes top of mind as I ask the, the questions. Uh, not, it's They're straightforward and uh, just lots of fun at the, at the same time. What is sure. your favorite word? Blue. Uh, <laughs> I, I love it, uh, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to ask why because I think part of this is I want the audience to engage with you and say, "Hey, like, call you out and be like, what? Why blue? I want to know why blue. Uh, what word do you hate? Nasty. Love it. Uh, what word do you have a hard time pronouncing, if any? Oh my gosh. No- Mnemonics. <laughs> did I, I say I'm it waiting. right? <laughs> yeah, you, you, you did. Did I'm I? Okay. <laughs> I had to say that. I had to think about it as I said it. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite word in another language, if any? Mm. I know you're multilingual, so that's why I'm part yeah. of the music for um, Salut. Because that's Very in much. multiple languages with different meaning. <laughs> Very, very, very much agree. And for anyone having uh, questions of what that means in another language, we can always chat offline. 
how many languages can you speak on that note? So conversationally, not thinking business-wise, um, there is four that I speak and seven that I read. Now, business-wise, professionally, I would say two. <laughs> so I have to ask which ones they are, just because it's in my very nature when the languages are involved. <laughs> so I am um, the the ones that I am sort of more fluent and proficient um, conversationally would be English, uh, which is not my mother tongue, by the way, um, French, Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese. And then I move into um, the German, the, excuse me, um, sorry, I said German, right? German, yes. and then um, I start getting into more dialects. So, for example, I can read Letzboyish from my Luxembourg days. I'm not a great speaker of it at all. <laughs> Much per just like German. It's actually very similar. It's a mix of French and German. And then um, I would say there is a couple of Spanish dialects and Italian dialects that add to my reading abilities, but I'm not very good in the Portuguese world with the je, you know, every the je sound, um, which in it appears like in French, with the c and the little s underneath, which is a very different sound in French. So, these all of these languages, with the exception of German and Luxembourgish, um, are uh, Latin-based, right? And so there's that common thread in them. That's why it's quite easy to read them and. Maybe not conversation. I'll, I might respond in a Latin-based language that isn't the one we're talking in, but you usually can convey your message, right? Because they're just so similar. Well, listen, all of they those may, languages. <laughs> they may all have a Latin root, but it's still quite impressive because it is by far a lot more language than the vast majority of the people in the world can do. So, <laughs> very interesting. Yeah, and that's that's the you know truthfully when you are a child of a European family, Europeans, it's very common to speak multiple languages, like, and I don't even mean English, like multiple European languages. It's very common. And um, again, having parents who came here without a word of English, um, so that, that's my Spanish and my French, then we had to learn the English to get by. But their mentality, generally speaking, Europeans is you can't hang your hat on English. Like you need other, and that's where it was the requirement. I always wanted to study Asian languages. I, I struggle with characters. When there's no alphabet um, associated with it, it's very difficult for me to, um, to get by. I have a lot of Cantonese words. I have a few Mandarin words, uh, but don't ask me to read it. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> And that's from my business experience, right? I've got those words. Um, but I think it's important. And I think appreciating another language gives you a perspective. Um, it's like working in a different country. We're talking all about the same things. But languages, which is the best way to look at this, they describe it differently, right? Like in English, we take nouns and make them verbs. You vacuum or it's a vacuum. But in other languages, 
you, you construct more complex sentences to describe the same thing. And to me, that's indicative of how they think, right? They're very descriptive. They're very thorough. And generally speaking, the English language is so succinct. They attach multiple meanings to the same word. It's kind of laziness. It's kind of their approach. Everything's got to be fast and simple and, but, and that culturally is reflected, right? So that's how I view it anyway. Now you're speaking my language, anthropology, <laughs> ethnology. Culture, yeah, so it's, it's, it's very true, right? These languages, like, I'm going to go back to my vacuuming. In many of the Latin-based languages, if you translate it literally to English, it's pass the vacuum, right? And people are like, what do you mean pass the vacuum? And, and they're describing, you're taking this noun, this thing, a vacuum, and you're moving it, you're, you know, versus in English, vacuum, vacuum, right? What, is that the verb or is that the noun? Um, it's not the same thing, right? One is a thing. So to me, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a good indicator of how people think. Um. The last question on our rapid fire questions, one word to describe yourself. Uh, it's, I know it's one of the hardest things to do to find one word, but I'm going to ask passionate. you. Anyway. Passionate. Passionate. Would you and agree, Gary? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and I think anyone that heard the podcast today would probably agree, just the passion in the various areas uh, that you apply yourself to. That's uh, the Latina. <laughs> The Latina in me. <laughs> Aren't all Latin, you know, folks passionate? Maybe not a positive passionate, but passionate. <laughs> there certainly seems to be a predisposition to it. <laughs> and Jackie, I really appreciate uh, your time today on the podcast. And I want to be respectful of your time. I think it's been amazing uh, to share some of these tips with the audience and uh, you probably will get a bunch of LinkedIn uh, outreaches of people <laughs> wanting to 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 want to connect. Join and my learn network. Exactly. <laughs> awesome! But it's been, it, it was it's great. Been it was great, Gary. I loved it.